Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As the UK wakes up this morning to discover it has voted to leave the European Union, the future looks very different. The UK voted to leave the European Union more than four years ago. The unexpected result threw currency markets into turmoil. The pound fell to its lowest level since 1985 in Asian trading. And the question of just how to unwind decades of integration has been the subject of near constant debate. It is clear that while there is broad support for many of the key aspects of the deal, on one issue, on one issue, the Northern Ireland backstop, there remains widespread and deep concern. We will therefore defer the vote schedule for tomorrow. And consequences. We're watching the pound fall right now. This after UK lawmakers rejected all four proposed Brexit alternatives. All four of them have been rejected at this point. After the UK officially left the EU in January, this year was meant to be a transition period, a time for politicians to agree on just what the future relationship between the two sides would look like. But the deadline for that deal is fewer than three weeks away. And at least at the time of this recording, trade talks are deadlocked on issues like how to create a level playing field for business, how to resolve future disputes, and fish. But there is one thing that politicians have excluded in the negotiations, financial services. And it has the city of London wondering what will happen come January 1st. This is Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. In our last episode of the season, we hear from Philip Stafford, editor of the FT Trading Room, and Stephen Morris, the FT's banking editor, on the big questions traders, exchanges, and the rest of the financial services industry face as the Brexit transition period comes to a close. London is a real home for all sorts of transactions, derivatives trading. Currency trading is another huge, huge market here in London. That's Philip Stafford, editor of the FT Trading Room. It's not just the currency of the UK, you know, it's, it's, a, small, it's a small market sterling, you know, but uh, dollar and, and euro is traded here. Big offshore Chinese market, big offshore Indian market here. These markets have been growing. London is by far and away the biggest place for bond trading in the EU. Up to 80% of deals can be traded through London. There are very few markets in which if the UK isn't number one, then it, then it isn't number two. When you, you get these pools of business where people can buy and sell and get in and out pretty quickly, that just attracts more people in. And, and so it, it's just this, this great hoovering effect <laughs> from around the world. And from that perspective, what the EU is, wants to try and do is, is to bring some of that business back into uh, the European Union simply because they would want oversight of it in the way that any regulator would. And some of it also to to accept that the UK and the EU will, over time, go their own way. So given that, there will have to be the inevitable wrenching of some sort of business uh, away. Now, the question that nobody can really answer right now, and probably won't even be answered in the first few weeks of January, is 
how much business and whether what goes to the EU is, is really just the start. Philip, you talked about the city having a sort of gravity. Can you tell me more about what you mean by that, perhaps with a very specific financial product? Yeah. Uh, one of London's big, important businesses is actually the trading of derivatives. Now, derivatives sometimes have a bad reputation. Warren Buffett once called them weapons of mass destruction. Didn't stop him from using them a little bit later on. Um, they are contracts that uh, are open for several months at a time, sometimes years at a time, uh, and which people use to try and hedge against movements in interest rates, a currency, against potentially any credit destabilization. People also use them for, for speculation. And for various reasons, London has become a home for this. It has been for, for 25, 30 years. This kind of business takes in an awful lot of capital. It requires an awful lot of knowledge and management. The actual business itself is well over 50 trillion. And these are notional values. But in order to try and manage some of these, these huge numbers, the management of these contracts over a long period of time is sent through a, a central utility known as a clearinghouse. And it, and it saves banks and their customers huge amounts of money. And so it, it becomes quite a, a very difficult to break into sort of business. The barriers around it are really, really strong. And so when you, you have a business like that, that, that London has, it does tend to draw people in from around the world. The whole of the derivatives market, both the trading and the clearing, is, is pretty much based in London. And that's the sort of business that the EU has concerns about because some of its business is really based in, in London. It would like to move it to the European Union. Stephen, if we could go back four years ago, more than four years ago at this point, what were you hearing from bankers and traders at the time of the referendum? Well, of course, a lot of people in the financial world were taken by surprise. I mean, as a lot of the country was at the time. And initially, their, their first reaction was very pessimistic. People were saying hundreds of thousands of jobs, tens of billions of assets would have to leave. When London lost its passporting, there was a there was this idea that because the schism between the EU and the UK would be so large, the EU would try and take back control of its own financial markets and, and the associated employment and tax revenue that came with it. So just to give you one example, last week I spoke to Axel Weber, who is the chairman of UBS at the FT's Banking Summit, obviously virtually in this day and age. And he told me that initially he thought about 1,000 jobs out of the 5,000 people UBS had in London would have to move to other centers within the EU. He subsequently downgraded this, he told me, to about 200 to 250, and that's largely done already, precisely because no other city has really emerged as the major threat to London that had been anticipated, not Frankfurt, not Paris, not Dublin, not Amsterdam, not Milan. And this is partly because none of them can immediately offer the same networking benefits of London. You know, the time zone, the education, the rule of law, the ecosystem around banking and finance, you know, the law firms, the consultants, etc. But also partly because all these European cities have spent the last four years fighting each other, all trying to win their own slices of London's pie. And as a result, they've kind of undermined each other as a whole. And so on that point, what are some of the strategies that other countries have employed to try to lure financial services away from the UK? We've seen a lot of European countries offering tax breaks to their rich citizens, you know, business owning citizens to come back. I think um, Italy has been offering tax breaks to rich people to come home and locate their companies there. It's one of the reasons Cristiano Ronaldo apparently wanted to move to Juventus. 
is that he gets he I think he gets his tax capped at a hundred thousand um, euros a year, which is obviously very attractive to him considering how much he earns. But we've seen sort of these shenanigans behind the scenes. You know, France has been making a big drive to attract private equity and asset management, which has been one of London's real strengths, again, by offering tax breaks, advantages. And you've even seen cities like Frankfurt and Paris offering to build more schools to educate the children of the traders and the investment bankers and the lawyers and the consultants that they want to move there. Because one of the major major reasons why banks have been able, unable to move for London is that this the infrastructure to support the families of all of these financial sector employees, male and female, who would have to move just really isn't there at the moment. Either the, the partners of, of the, the bank employee say, can't find a job, or at least not a job paying the same at the same level. They can't get their kids into a school. There's not the same level of housing stock. This type of development of a city takes time. And I don't know how much time all of our readers or listeners have, have spent in Frankfurt or Paris or Amsterdam. None of them are cities on the same scale as London. London is much larger and has kind of this dedicated infrastructure that has been built up over decades around the financial service industry. Now, that's not to say one can't develop over time, but it's not something that any city has been able to do over the past four years. So it hasn't been as simple as designating, you know, a new financial center, a new financial hub for Europe. Um, How has the sector otherwise prepared for Brexit? Once the UK had made the the pretty clear political decision that it was going to leave all of the, the European perimeters, you know, the, the customs union, the single market, everything, uh, by a, a, a pretty undeniable logic, barriers were going to have to go up. And, and it was going to be a pretty hard split and the UK would be treated as a completely separate country. When you reach that conclusion, the main thing that you then think about is if it's a totally jurisdiction, we have to set up uh, operations in the EU somewhere to serve our EU clients because it, it's not going to be possible to do this from the UK. As uh, Stephen uh, also mentioned earlier, one of the driving factors for the EU here has been they want to reduce their reliance on the city of London. It is a third country. It's an entirely natural position to actually want to have more oversight of what you see as key to your financial services. Every regulator would want to do that. So when you put all that in uh, on the table, the clear thing to do is, is, is to set up offices in the jurisdictions where you don't have one. Now, banks have been going to, to Frankfurt and Paris, trading venues have sort of been around Amsterdam, Dublin, Luxembourg, um, some in Milan, some in Madrid. It, it has been spread out. I mean, all banks, most of them guessed that the bitter negotiations go down to the wire you know, so it, it wasn't it, this kind of no deal hard Brexit for financial services has been widely expected for about, well, for firstly, for the first two years, and then there's a two year extension. So now for four years. So they've all set up these European hubs, you know, where they've moved a certain amount of assets and risk people and, and sales people, etc. But they really have, for the most part, done the bare minimum, especially the American banks, the bare minimum to satisfy the demands of regulators and politicians. But broadly, most of their operations are still in London. So whilst a lot of the face-to-face client activity may now take place for French clients in Paris or, or Spanish clients in Madrid, most of the guts of their operations are still in London. And they'd like to try and keep it that way as much as possible. So what we haven't seen is any kind of wholesale transition of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you know, JP Morgan to other centers. They may have hired a bit more office space and bulked up and hired a bit more in there. 
But you know, London, in terms of assets, jobs, and senior expertise, London is still multiples of what you would see in Paris or Frankfurt. European corporates, for example, can open up offices in London and use that as a way to access London's market, i.e. so a big German corporate could open up a, a small office in London and start you know, using that office to engage banks to raise financing for them or execute trades or hedge their, hedge their exposures. There's also been a lot of talk about banks routing trades and clearing derivatives, things like that through New York, because New York actually does have an equivalence deal with the EU, uh, which the UK is still fighting for at the moment. There's actually this bizarre situation you might have where a trade in, in, you know, done in the EU is sent over to New York and then it's sent back to London and then it goes back to New York and then back to the EU, kind of in this sort of convoluted triangular arrangement just to try and get around. You know, that's a way to get around having to do everything in the EU is to do everything in New York. And indeed, a lot of the people that we've been speaking to over the course of our reporting on Brexit have said the major beneficiary um, from the decline of London is not going to be Frankfurt. It's going to be New York. It's going to be Singapore. And until recently, it might have been Hong Kong. Philip Stephen just mentioned equivalence deals. New York has them. The UK wants them post-Brexit. What are they and why are they so important, particularly now? The phrase equivalence deals is, is actually a, um, it's a legal term. What they really refer to is the way that the EU manages its relations with other jurisdictions around the world, not just the UK, but the US, Japan, Singapore, etc. And what they do, and this is something only the EU has, they agree that the jurisdiction overseas has rules and supervisory standards that are pretty much the same. And therefore that the banks and the brokers and, and asset managers in the EU can then go and use local exchanges or whatever services they want to use. The strange thing about Brexit is that the UK imported all EU rules, so the UK gets to have this equivalence construct as well. So we, we both get the same toy, as it were. Now, what it, it, it essentially means is that it allows only the financial services firms, of which you, you regulate in your own jurisdiction, to go and trade somewhere else. So if, if the EU gives equivalence to the US, then you know it allows financial banks in, in Paris to go and trade in New York or Chicago. Now, the other important thing to note about equivalence, it's actually a two-stage process, and there are also about 40 of these equivalence decisions covering various aspects of financial services business. They range from share trading to using clearinghouses and, and securities depositories and recognition of audit and capital requirements. So as you come down to the last few weeks, there's still a bit of uncertainty about whether some of these equivalence decisions covering certain aspects of activity in financial services will be granted. Will you be able to actually go and say trade shares in the EU and vice versa? Share trading actually would probably be quite a good example. As it stands, and as has been the case for the last decade, most share trading in the EU during the day takes place in London. Um, there is a danger that effectively without equivalence, people in the EU will not be able to trade on these exchanges in the UK. So what you effectively have to do is that these exchanges and trading venues in the UK have to set up copycat arrangements in the EU so that UK fund managers and based banks can trade in London and EU-based banks and fund managers can trade in the EU. Are they trading the same thing? Yep. 
uh, will it be the same price? Pretty closely. But they will be different markets, but they'll be going through different legal entities. And that, of course, I guess negates one of the benefits of having one global financial hub or one financial hub. Yes, that's one of the things that I think will probably happen. When you split a market like that, you split the liquidity. And the liquidity is just a, a, a jargon word for being able to buy and sell things very quickly. Um, if you ever tried to sell a house and nobody wants to buy it, then you know how difficult it can be. When you split a market like that, it doesn't necessarily make for a, a more efficient market, uh, a better priced market. So the consequence of Brexit, and, and to be fair, the policymakers know full well that this will happen. They know that the market will split. It may well cost a little bit more. But it goes back to the point that, you know, essentially Brexit is a political issue and not an economic one. So with just a few weeks before the end of this transition period, what is the sector facing come January 1st or rather January 4th being the first day of official trading? Um, I don't think either side, when it really comes down to it, wants some kind of mass financial market disruption on January the 1st with companies unable to hedge exposures, unable to raise debt properly, unable to properly operate their derivatives. It seems like after the year that we've had, especially the market turbulence in March going into April linked to coronavirus, one can't imagine that there's a huge amount of appetite for another event of that scale, especially when you know financial system is being propped up by extraordinary support by governments and regulators around the world. But it's Equally, the fate of financial services is not in its own hands. It's not part of the trade deal. And as bizarre it could sound, a disagreement over comparatively minor amounts of revenue brought in from fishing could derail the entire thing. Um, we're as, as reliant on our colleagues in, in the UK parliamentary lobby to tell us what's going on as we are from the senior financial figures that we that we speak to. But, but as Jess Staley, the CEO of Barclays, said to me, we were on the Sunday after Brexit. We gathered together in our private bank headquarters in Mayfair to debate. And the first thing we said is that this issue is so tense, so fraught, that the political intensity will, will not drop until midnight on the day of the deadline. And that has proved to be fairly prescient. Yeah, I mean, it really has. And that has set the tone for, for so much of, of the financial services industry's approach that it, it's had its opinions, but... Uh, it's not spoken up because it, it is a very tense thing. And um, mm. you've seen other people put their head above the parapet and uh, you just get this volley of artillery coming in. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's a really tense situation. Yeah. And if you're a banker or a private equity titan or someone like that, you haven't got any friends in the media and you have relatively few <laughs> public friends in Westminster. You know, you, you sort of trying to raise your hand and say, oh, but what about the banks? You know, the, the memories of bailouts of RBS and Lloyds and Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley and a whole host of other institutions that collapsed or at least very nearly did in the financial crisis is still fresh among the minds of politicians and their voters. So that to me is still the defining reason why financial services hasn't been placed. In addition to the fact that there is a very tense battle against the tens of billions in, in, in tax revenue and employment and prestige associated with one of the world's big industries, which has you know, been disproportionately located uh, in the European time zone in London now since you know Margaret Thatcher's 1986 big bang, the big deregulation of the city, which you know, brought in so much US and European business 
as yet, no other European financial centre has managed to um, has managed to replicate. So we are waiting on a lot of things to come together over the next few weeks, if if they do at all. The finalized trade deal, some of those, you know, what happens next on equivalents, things that might soften this idea of a hard Brexit, um, at least for the financial sector. What do you think will be some of the long-term consequences of Brexit for the industry? What I think what most people are really hoping for is that markets don't become too fragmented because I mean, it's a, one of London's great successes and one of the reasons why people do come here and, and, and it is big is because it's the depth of the market and the deeper the market is it attracts more people and it becomes a, a virtuous circle all the time and, and it just makes it easier to buy and sell things at, a, at a, a, a more competitive price. Now when the EU breaks off there'll be a chunk of that goes. I don't think anybody can really say for sure how much that is really going to, to go. Depends on the asset class, depends on the type of business that you do. In some areas, the EU's business is going to be vanishingly small. Uh, it really is. And the only place that you can get some of this stuff is London. And therefore, that access will eventually in time be demanded, if only, if only from uh, people in the EU who are being disadvantaged by not having access to these things. So it's not just the fact that London is a nice place to live, um, but ultimately, it just it's a place where people can actually get the most efficient and best prices for, for what they need to do. And in a world where trading and capital and advice is global and move across borders, in some cases, in fractions of a, of a second, um, that sort of access and that ability to move across borders will, will have to be facilitated somehow. And so, you know, and one of the questions that will probably begin to come up in the in the coming months after we get over the January the first hump and everybody adjusts to the new reality is is, is this actually a, a permanent state of affairs or, or will a, a sort of a, a financial gravity of the kind that's taken place over the last 20 years begin to reassert itself? As everybody knows right now, it is so politicized the trade talks override everything and there's a lot of heat at the moment and everything will be somewhat cooler in, in a few months i think there's also probably going to be a fair amount of, of wait and see you can read the latest on brexit and what's next for financial services at ft.com i've linked to a few articles in the show notes Behind the Money is produced by Oluwakemi Aladesui, Rain Turner is our sound engineer, and Liam Nolan is our editor. On a final note, this year began with business as usual, and then came coronavirus, of course. Over the past few weeks, we've brought you stories about how the flow of money is changing in the midst of the pandemic, how it's testing the rules of M&A engagement, which sectors are flourishing in spite of the economic downturn, and how companies are turning to private credit to name a few recent episodes. Behind the Money will be back with new episodes in the new year. Thanks for listening. <laughs>